Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Histories of the Unexpected, the show in which we demonstrate that everything, simply everything you could possibly think of, has its own history, like parasites, hills, and eyelids. Oh, I love the idea of doing eyelids. Sam, I think we should definitely do eyelids. We're going to do ketchup. Mm. We're going to do ketchup later in the week. And I also think we should do something for the Jubilee, since half of next week is off as a bank holiday in the United Kingdom. Or we could do... I just I did just drive through a little village in Devon, and they've got all of their bunting out. So I think the history oh. of bunting has to Ooh, be a part of that. Bun- definitely. The hist- Ooh, yes. Mm. Let's do the history of bunting, for sure. Or we could do mm. eyes, spies and lies, size... Flies and pies. I think we should definitely do something on the history of pies. Mm. Um, spying pies, I think, would be, <laughs> would, be, would be very good. However, for the moment, mm. we'll be following our link, the links in our minds as we come across them, explaining, explaining very carefully indeed how those histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, who knew that the history of monkeys is in fact all about Shakespeare and the infinite monkey theorem. It's about monkeys and dogs in space. It's about Dutch art. And it's also about the history of racism and ancient Egypt. Who knew? Or who knew that the history of thirst is in fact all about the history of California and access to water. It's a global history of drinking water. It's also all about Pablo Valencia's extraordinary trek through the Arizona desert and the scientific study of dehydration. It's about the history of teetotalism, the discovery of five crates of liquor under Ernest Shackleton's Antarctic hut and historical cocktails. Who knew, Sam Willis? <laughs> I thought you said the history of fur there, which is definitely one we should do. Ooh. So I think Ooh. we should do the history of fur. Oh, I'm uh, making, that's, I'm that's making that's... a list. So we've got, we've got <laughs> eyelids... Eyelids, bunting, f- yeah. fur, yeah. and pies. <laughs> I love histories of the unexpected. <laughs> Who knows what we will uncover? Um, Who knows? Well, let me introduce my uh, fellow presenter. I would say that if history were a Caribbean territory, this man would be nothing less than the president of the ultimate banana republic, an astonishing land of historical goodness with just the right amount of historical carbohydrates to energise your work in the archives. A land which would consist of Jamaica, Belize, Costa Rica, the Dominican Republic, Honduras, Jamaica again, Guadeloupe, uh, Martinique. St Lucia, St Vincent and the Grenadines, Granada, Trinidad and Tobago, Nicaragua, Panama, Suriname and Colombia. He is the president of that country where you could end up kidnapped by a drug smuggling gang or left in glorious isolation on the beaches of history. He is Professor Extraordinaire of Early Modern British History at Plymouth University. It's James Daybell. Hello, Sam. You've positively outdone yourself today and I I think I know exactly where you're going with this. Uh, You may well be wondering, as always, who is that unattributed voice so ably helping Daybell co-pilot this episode? Well, let's just say that if he were a banana-related historian. There's no slipping head over heels on the banana skin of historical censure from mean-spirited reviewers for this historian. So ripe and sweet is the fruit of his historical endeavours. So keen is he to peel back the layers of untruth and falsity as he monkey-like ascends the very highest tree to secure (laughs) his historical bunch of facts, to scribe them down, bead-like on a banana leaf for posterity. Yes, you've guessed it. It's your friend and mine across town, the famous <laughs> historical adventurer, Dr. Sam Willis. Well done. 
James, that was tremendous. <laughs> I think I'm not sure Bede did write on banana leaves, <laughs> but if he did, uh, yeah. I'm sure uh, he. I think it be... might be the first ever sentence in which Bede is said alongside uh, the phrase "monkey like." Monkey like. So there we go. <laughs> monkey like um, Bede. <laughs> guys, we're doing the history of bananas. Um, I can't remember why. I can. I was giving uh, a seminar on podcasting to our public history MA at the University of Plymouth and the brilliant students uh, <laughs> um, the brilliant students I'm saying brilliant students um, they because they are um, but they they um, indulged me by doing a little game at the end which was to come up with lots of ideas for histories of the unexpected and one of the Ooh. things that I got really excited about was bananas and they were so excited about it they said it's about this it's about that it's about the other and I thought right well we're we're gonna do that and so for me I was thinking that actually I'm I'm starting with the history of the banana leaf as a surface for writing and you know that this led to all sort the development of all sorts of scripts in southeast Asia and if you think about it if you think about a banana leaf, you imagine it. It's often used to sort of present food in, in certain kinds of restaurants. But if you think about how you might scratch and scrape it, that, of course, leads to a particular sort of evolution of script that doesn't damage damage the leaf. So it led to a whole range of, of different sort of forms of writing. So there we are. That was one of my things that I was going with the um, with the banana, Sam. Yeah, I'll jump in there as well because um, a similar sort of thing. Because I, I initially started thinking about bananas, but then I, I have got four enormous banana trees in my garden, oh. um, and the, the one dominant thing about them is how magnificent the leaves are. And I'm lucky to have spent a lot of time travelling in Asia, um, and banana leaves are everywhere. They, they're hugely important in cooking. Uh, they're hugely important in religion. Um, they make the most wonderful kind of ceremonial sort of baskets and things uh, out of them in Southeast Asia in particular. But writing, yes, tremendous. So if anyone here has got a banana tree in the garden, um, A, make yourself some kind of steamed parcel of rice for your lunch and wrap it in a, ban- in a banana leaf. It's like a, like an Asian Cornish pasty, much, much better for you. Um, but B, try and write on it. And James mentioned that there, but... Um, the it's it, the way the leaf forms means that if you write in like runes would be the worst possible type of writing because they're they're uh, uh, sharp straight lines and it would split mm. the leaf. Um, but curly writing it, it works. It works on a banana leaf. It doesn't break the leaf, which is why you've got those magnificent um, scripts uh, from from Southeast Asia. Um, and uh, believed to have been formed on on uh, on banana leaves, which I, I think is quite interesting. James, you must know quite a lot about the history of writing. I do know sure. quite a bit about the history of writing. But <laughs> I came across a brilliant thing at the Met Museum uh, when I was squiggling through the the internet looking for artefacts to do with writing and banana leaves. And this is there's a wonderful case, uh, a Chinese case from the 18th and 19th century. Um, which has on it a um, a depiction of Chinese sages drinking and writing on a banana leaf. It's a beautiful sort of wooden, or it's a beautiful red case um, with this sort of beautiful depiction of this scene on it. Um, so have a look at that on the the Met Museum Asian Art website. 
Mm, sounds good. I came across um, the uh, something from the from Easter Island. I don't know. Do you know anything about this? The Rongo Rongo script. Um, I don't which know. Is what, uh, well, this is amazing. Tell me about right? it. Uh, I, I want to know more about. Tell this. our audience um, about it, Sam Willis. The Rongo Rongo script from Easter Island. What's important about it is that we don't know what it means, and there are very very few scripts in the world that we have not managed to decipher. So all of the, the most wonderful um, linguistic scholars throughout history who um, managed to kind of crack the Egyptian hieroglyphs have been stumped by the Rongo Rongo script of Easter Island. Um, very interesting in the way that it developed, in the way it appears. It, it's um, kind of like hieroglyphs. So um, there, there are lots of little pictures um, and it is believed because of the way that they are formed. The surviving examples, I should say, all exist on pieces of wood. Uh, not sort of beautifully presented pieces of wood, often like kind of little bits of wood, which is quite interesting. Um, but because of the curliness of many of the glyphs, it's believed that it originated on writing on banana leaves as well. Um, but it hasn't been deciphered, and that is making it incredibly difficult to sort of understand the history of the writing itself. So one of the interesting things about writing is that it does have history. So writing doesn't magically appear in places. Well, not necessarily. Um, and there, there is a fascinating history linked with travel, linked with geography. And there's also a sort of a historiography of this. So originally, people believed that writing originated in one place in the world, in Mesopotamia. And then it spread from there... Um, so Asia Minor is what we're thinking about. It spread from there through cultural diffusion, you know, travellers, I should think, the Silk Road, very important, maritime travel from um, from Asia Minor across the Mediterranean. However, um, the, our understanding of that has dramatically changed um, th- through the, the amazing work of, of historians and archaeologists. And now we believe that writing actually developed in uh, at least four completely separate civilizations at different times. So you've got Mesopotamia, and that's about 3,500 BC. Egypt, um, maybe 3,200 BC. China, um, about 1,200 BC. I'm very lucky. I've seen a lot of the very early Chinese writing. It's stunning. Um, and then um, the one that kind of threw everyone is in South Mexico and Guatemala, where um, they believe writing developed completely independently in around um, 500 BC. So what's interesting is that this Rongo Rongo script from Easter Island would fit into that narrative, but it'd be a completely separate version. It would be a fifth example of writing developing completely on its own. But we can't say that until it's deciphered and yet no one knows what it means. So it's a challenge out there for someone. Uh, I might give up what I'm doing and become an expert on glyphs and try and uh, try and translate that. I think that would be a nice a nice uh, a contribution to the world of history, James. It sounds like a retirement project, Sam. <laughs> it does. Uh, I, 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 could, yeah. I could imagine, you know, in my in my my dotage, uh, taking up such a such an endeavour. <laughs> no, I, I, I can imagine coming round you being <laughs> like a silk dressing gown <laughs> with a smoking hat, exactly. And all all you would talk about is the Rongo Rongo script, script. exactly. Now I'm interested <laughs> in the taste of bananas, and this was one of the things that really struck me and got me really excited about this, doing this as bananas as a topic, because my brilliant students were saying that actually the bananas that we have nowadays are not the bananas that people would have eaten in earlier generations and that in fact we have this lost sort of delicious banana uh, that went extinct 
in the 1950s when uh, uh, when basically what you have is the dominant uh, banana from the later half of the 19th century onwards is a banana called the the Gros Michel so G R O S uh, space M I C H E L and this was a sort of delicious banana it, difficult to bruise um you know it was you know but it was swept away by a strain of a panama disease uh which you know led to sort of was also known as banana wilt and basically it was this this noxious uh, fungus that inhabited the soil and killed it and what you have now is a banana called the cavendish and this is the sort of dominant banana and this stems from britain and it's linked to William Cavendish, um, who was an aristocrat in England and is, is known sort of, you know, in popular tradition as the inventor of the Cavendish banana. Um, he is the Duke of Devonshire. Um, he inherits the title um, at the age of 21. Uh, you know, he's an aristocrat, superbly educated. Um, and he has all sorts of interests, including in in botanicals. Um, you know, he's interested in crops and agriculture. He has plantations. He's president of the Horticultural Society of London, which later becomes the RHS, so the Royal Horticultural Society. And he, in about the sort of early uh, 19th century, I think it's about 1834, he receives a shipment of bananas uh, which come to him from Mauritius and he's fascinated by them. And he gets a, a friend, a man known as Joseph Paxton, to start growing these bananas at his home, which is Chatsworth House, which is also the home of, of Bess of Hardwick, the earlier home of Bess of Hardwick, who's one of his sort of uh, ancestors and about whom I know, you know, all all sorts of interesting detail but she's not relevant to this but anyway they develop this they they grow and succeed in developing uh the cavendish banana and it wins a silver medal at the royal horticultural society uh event in 1835 um and it's thought not to be you know as delicious a banana as the as the the, the gros michel but as the gros michel sort of becomes uh, wiped out the um the cavendish banana takes over so there we are there's the um a sort of a little bit of history of of how the banana that we eat today uh has a fascinating history sam willis all related to the um duke of devonshire good I, do, I did do you know like that? the phrase <laughs> no but i'm still giggling i'm trying not to giggle hysterically to the phrase dominant banana which is what uh, <laughs> what appeared in... <laughs> oh tush <laughs> you know, tush i really enjoy. mind out of the gutter um, willis <laughs> so the um the, the general kind of history of banana movement is also interesting so uh, but just because it, it links to so many other big themes in history. So what we know is that it was originally found in Southeast Asia, uh, mainly in India, but then it was brought um, west by Arab conquerors. So it's clearly linked with the Arab invasion of India, which itself is a fascinating subject. So a, a number of sea naval expeditions, James, you won't be surprised, around the 630s, and they all failed because they were beaten back. Um, by the locals. So these are these are um, Arab attempts at sea power, which doesn't work. 
Um, and it's not until you've got a phase of really significant expansion, military expansion by the Umayyads um, from 692 to 718. Um, and so those are the guys that they managed to invade India and then they bring the banana back. There's another really interesting move now. Um, so the banana's gone from India to Asia Minor, so it then has to get from Asia Minor to Africa, uh, which is clearly all to do with the spread of the rise of the Ottoman Empire. So um, we are now talking about the 1400s. So you've got um, the expansion of Islam, 7th and 8th century, um, and then so, so 700 or so years after that, the rise of the Ottomans. And they end up um, controlling a huge amount of territory they take to the sea um, once they capture Constantinople. And they end up becoming the dominant power in the Mediterranean at the expense of some pre-existing, very powerful uh, Mediterranean powers, like the Venetians, or primarily the Venetians. And the majority of this happens under the, uh, the guise of the brilliant Suleiman the Magnificent. So it's because of that that bananas make their next major jump. So they've gone from India to Asia Minor and they go then with the Ottomans from Asia Minor to Africa and from Africa up into southern Spain. And then we move on to the 15th to 16th centuries. And of course, we've got New World. We've got explorers um, going across the Atlantic and they take their bananas uh, they take their bananas with them. And also we've got a really interesting role here, James, in missionaries being part of that. So you haven't just got uh, uh, conquistadors, you haven't just got uh, people going out there to conquer, uh, to steal territory. You have got a wave of missionaries going out there preaching the word of God. But um, it's because of this in the 16th century, 15th, 16th century, that you've got um, bananas cross the Atlantic, which is where it becomes hugely important as, uh, as, a, as a business. But that mass production itself can't start until two things are possible. One is that you need to be able to cross the Atlantic fast enough to um, get back before all of your food has perished. So speed is important. The size of vessels is important. So it doesn't work economically unless you've got the hold of a ship which is big enough to store enough bananas for you to make enough money. And the most important bit is you can't do it without refrigeration. So uh, it's also linked with the history of refrigeration. So think here about the 1830s, which is when they started to really get to grips with the idea of um, not just any kind of electrical refrigeration, but refrigeration on a scale which will allow you to transport bananas across vast distances. So I just I really like the way, James, that you can actually um, splice the history of bananas into some of the most important events in history, whether it was the spread of Islam, the Ottomans in the Mediterranean, the conquistadors of the 16th century, and then electricity and refrigeration. Oh, love it. Love it, love it, love it. I was reading the most fascinating article by uh, University of Warwick academic uh, Rebecca Earle uh, on, in the journal The Conversation. It was a brilliant, brilliant um, uh, sort of periodical. It's online and it's a way in which uh, academics can digest their work in a really sort of popular form. And this was about the history of the banana, uh, the day bananas made their British debut. What's fascinating here is about how they really take off in the 1940s and 1950s, where they're represented as a sort of, you know, exotic, luxurious, sort of slightly sensual sort of fruit, but actually have a much 
earlier history. And one of the first appearances of them is in 1633, when a merchant, uh, Thomas Johnson, uh, puts them in the display of his shop in Holborn, uh, in London. Uh, And he included a woodcut from John Gerard's popular botanical encyclopedia, The Herbal or General History of Plants. And and this is fascinating. Uh, I've got the, the page in front of me here, and there is a, a an illustration of the exact figure of the plantain fruit or the or the banana. Plantains and, and bananas are sort of sometimes seen as interchangeable. But you see them bunched and then you see uh, a sort of picture of a banana and then it chopped in half lengthways and then chopped in half so that you you know so in, in so that you have a cross section of it um and it it it's got a brief description about the banana the place this admirable tree groweth in egypt cyprus and syria near unto a chief city there called Alep which we call Aleppo, and also by Tripoli, not far from thence it groweth also in Canara, Deccan, Guzarate, and Bengala, places of the East Indies. The time. From the root of this tree shooteth forth young springs or shoots, which the people take up and plant for the increase in the spring of the year, the leaves wither away in September, as is above said. The names. It is called Musa by such as travel to Aleppo, by the Arabians Musa Malm, in Syria Moza, uh, the Grecians and Christians which inhabit Syria and the Jews also suppose it to be that tree of the fruit Adam did taste, which others think to be a ridiculous fable of Pliny or Puntia. It is called in the East Indies as in Malua, where it is also groweth um, Palan, and in Maleo Pican, and in that part of Africa, which we call Guinea, bananas, in English, Adam's apple tree. The temperature, Dioscorides and Serapio judge that it heateth in the end of the first degree, and moisteneth in the end of the same. The virtues, the fruit hereof yieldeth but little nourishment. It is good for the heat of the breast, lungs, and bladder. It stoppeth the liver, and hurteth the stomach, if too much of it be eaten, and procureth. And so that is one of the sort of first sort of... um, the first sort of representations of it or displays of it in England. But then the the, the article then goes on connecting it to much more sinister uh, parts of history. And it talks about the, the cultivation of it. And then it also talks about the 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 way in which it is it 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 travels over to the Caribbean um, and then into the Americas. And in particular it's concerned with some of the atrocities that we see happening uh, in places like Colombia and the Caribbean coast. Um, and what you have there is a is basically um, large-scale um, American or U.S. companies, the United Fruit Company um, there, um, and they have a you know a real sort of um control over the way in which these um 
the way in which the bananas are planted and then there are there are all sorts of atrocities uh, perpetrated so one of the things that happens here is that the workers group together and they um they basically withhold their labor go on strike and then the united fruit company uh, intervenes and the colombian troops basically gun down uh, the workers and this is a, a sort of a, a dreadful uh, massacre that takes place on the 6th of December uh, 1928 when Colombian workers basically gather together to protest about the conditions of their employment under the United Fruit Company or the UFC um, and basically what they do is um, the United States government gets involved it threatens to invade Colombia to sort of quell this this protests and basically what this does in the end is it forces the Colombian government to do the job themselves and dispatch a, an army regiment and they basically go into the the place where people are protesting and they set up the machine guns on the roofs they then give the protesters who've gathered there as a group a warning to disperse and when they refuse to do so they basically just open fire on them indiscriminately killing men women children and you know it's a really sort of nasty episode in history where you can see this kind of um collision of you know of sort of colonial powers and the power of economics in order to you know force particular kinds of behaviors um and it's not just there you can see it elsewhere uh in guatemala uh for example in 1954 the united fruit company cooperates with the u.s state department and the guatemalan military to overthrow jacobo arbenz who is the democratically elected you know ruler of that country and basically because they you know he nationalizes uh some of the unused lands that were owned by the fruit company and what you get instead is the collapse of democratic government and a whole load of you know of sort of guerrilla of a whole load of um you know of decades of military rule and and basically there there's guerrilla activity in response to this and you know and it effectively what you have is a genocide um against the sort of indigenous mayor population uh, so some really sort of dark tales and dark sides of you know uh, banana crops and the importance that it has for uh local economic interests i didn't think you didn't don't think you thought i was going to go in that direction did you well, no, no, I was surprised. I was surprised. Um, interestingly, Carlos uh, Armas, the guy who actually takes charge in the Guatemalan Revolution, is um, the most extraordinary looking person. He's like half Charlie Chaplin and half Hitler. And the so the CIA have backed him to take take charge. And it's quite interesting reading about the description of the the American funded coup, essentially. So they broadcast anti-government propaganda with news that's favourable to to the Americans. Um, they bomb Guacam Guatemala City from the air. They set up a naval blockade. 
Um, and not only that, to justify the coup, they then launched the CIA. This is launched a completely separate thing called Operation PB History, which what they try and do is to find written evidence of Russian Soviet influence in Guatemala. So they defend their actions according to the fear of communism. And it just uh, it, it struck me, James, that so many of those stories there and the way they set about it is what the Russians are doing in Ukraine at the minute. Certainly is. I was quite interested what you said right at the beginning as well as talking about the uh, banana in English. It was called Adam's fruit. Is that right? Yes. Adam's yeah. apple. Yeah, or yeah, Adam, yeah. yeah. So I came across a load of stuff here. 15th century um, descriptions by Christian monks uh, writing about it. So these are, there's one guy in particular, Felix Fabry, who spends a lot of time in Palestine. And he says, in relation to this tree, all the Eastern Christians, pagans, and who are the Muslims, and the Jews believe that this fruit was the one that Adam and Eve were commanded not to eat in the Garden of Eden. So they think it's the fruit from the tree of knowledge, not an apple. So, and that's not the only example. I found lots of other examples of this, which raises a lot of questions. So if... If the banana was the apple of paradise, it's also the, the brilliant and very confusing history of the Bible. At what stage does it become an actual apple? Or have we just misunderstood it and the bananas were always known as apples? So why did it change? At what stage did it change? Do we, do we now, James, need to be calling apples bananas? Or do we need to be calling bananas apples? It's a kind of a dangerous web of I'm confused. Here. I'm very confused. We, uh, yeah, but are we supposed to have banana sauce with roast pork? <laughs> No, even though be, it's made out it of it would apples. be abhorrent. It would be <laughs> abhorrent. But um, uh, guys, the point is, is that is a, uh, it's one of these wonderful examples that throws into into daylight just how brilliant and confusing the history of the Bible was. Um, if it magically has turned an apple into a banana or a banana into an apple, um, I'm just going to end James with a little story about um, a capital punishment in India. So uh, Mahadeb Mulik, very interesting chap. He was born into a family of Indian hangmen. Um, capital punishment it exists in, in India and you are executed by hanging. Um, there haven't been that many recently. Um, four people for a gang rape uh, quite recently, the Mumbai bombings. Um, if you go back into the 80s and the 70s, there were quite a lot of hangings. They were, a lot of them seem to have been done by this bloke's um, father, um, and his grandfather and his great-great-grandfather, uh, which I thought was quite interesting. Um, we know that uh, his grandfather carried out 600 hangings um, and that his great-great-grandfather, this is really interesting, was described as India's only hangman who lived on the edge which I thought was a really weird eulogy for a, for a dead man, particularly a hangman. Anyway, my point about all of this is that um, this chap learns from his father and he, he actually goes along and witnesses um, uh, hanging his executions with his grandfather and he's taught how to, how to do it. They practice um, with um, a 75-kilogram sandbag figure and he's told how to tie the knot and more importantly, he's told how to make the rope slippery so the rope doesn't get caught. And he does that using mashed bananas. So there is a really surprising interest here between uh, the history of bananas and um, capital, um, uh, uh, the death penalty in India. Who knew that? I, I did not know that. But Sam, let's stop the press. We've just had a lovely email from one of our listeners in South Africa about our recent episode on the thumb. 
Oh, yeah. Uh, thumbing a lift in South Africa. Uh, hello, dear Ooh. James and Sam. I'm a South African and might shed some light on hand signals used here. Much of our public transport has developed into the privatised minibus taxi industry, mainly in cities. People wishing to stop a taxi use of a wide variety of hand signals that indicate where they want to go. The minibus taxi going there will stop. Others drive past. On the open road, thumbing a lift is still seen or people hold up a handmade sign with their design destination written on it how lovely to get in touch how kind mm. it's lovely to hear indeed. that thank you so much for getting in touch who was that james who was it who, who wrote the email are we allowed to say who that is absolutely absolutely uh anna Buber de villiers Oh, what a name. So, <laughs> very good stuff. Well, thank you very much indeed for getting in touch. So if any of you um, have got any banana-related uh, stories, we'd also like to hear those. That would be fantastic. Excellent. Excellent. Um, we've got, uh, we're doing ketchup, aren't we? We are. On Friday. Yes. Mm, interesting. Um, well, have you got anything on ketchup? Me, nothing. <laughs> Currently, not a, not, a, not a thing. I but I will surely on, find something. I have something. lots on ketchup. Uh, <laughs> nothing on Heinz yet, but... Um, but something on ketchup. And then we're going to do fur, pies, bunting and eyelids. I think we should do, having done the thumb, I think we should do the finger. Oh, yeah, that's a great idea. All right, let's do that. Okay. Um, guys, thank you very much for listening. Do please follow us on social media. I'm at Dr. Sam Willis. And if you're interested in maritime and naval history, please listen to my other podcast, The Mariner's Mirror Podcast. And you can follow me on social media. I'm on Twitter at James Daybell. You can follow the podcast at Unexpected Pod. We are also on Instagram and Facebook, so come and make friends with us there. Check out our website, historiesoftheunexpected.com, for all our back catalogue. And we still have signed copies of our books available. In fact, I've just redone my study, Sam Willis, uh, and I have mm. all of our all of our lovely books on the shelf behind me so they are easily at hand to whiz out in the post to you if you wish to become a patron of histories of the unexpected well do no more than head over to patreon.com and check us out at histories of the unexpected anything that you can help to support the way in which we change the way in which people think about history would be very much appreciated that's it guys thank you very much we'll be back again soon cheerio take care guys bye <laughs>